Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a Q&A from the 60th New York Film Festival with stonewalling filmmakers Hyung Ji and Ryuji Atsuka, moderated by FLC Senior Director of Programming Florence Almozini and interpreted by Vincent Chang. But first, listen to a special programmer's preview of the 28th Rendezvous with French Cinema from FLC Assistant Programmer Maddie Whittle. Our annual festival celebrating the best works in contemporary French film is now taking place through March 12th with filmmaker Q&As, free talks, and more. Explore the lineup and get tickets at filmlink.org slash rdv. Hi, my name is Maddie Whittle. I am assistant programmer at Film at Lincoln Center and one of the co-programmers of our annual Rendezvous with French Cinema which we present each year in collaboration with UniFrance. And this year will be taking place from today, March 2nd, through Sunday, March 12th. Uh, and so I'm just joining the podcast to say a few words about the program and, and um, highlight a few films and events that we're really excited to uh, share with you and hope to welcome uh, the podcast audience to in the next couple of weeks. Uh, first off, this evening is opening night of the festival, which will feature two screenings of the new film Revoir Paris, directed by Alice Winocourt, uh, which I first encountered at this year's uh, Toronto International Film Festival. It's a really extraordinary film, and the latest in Winocourt's uh, really prolific filmography of the last few years. Uh, the film takes place in the aftermath of a mass shooting in a Parisian restaurant and centers on a character played by Virginie Evera, who uh, was just awarded the César, or French equivalent of the Oscar, uh, for Best Actress for this performance in this film. Uh, and we're really incredibly excited that Alice Winocourt and Virginie Evera will both be uh, in attendance for uh, these screenings and uh, for other events uh, that I will to tell you about in just a moment. I just also want to highlight that this opening night screening, Revoir Paris, also stars Benoit Magimel, who was also recently awarded a César for Best Actor, in his case, uh, for his starring role in Albert Serra's Pacifiction, which you may have seen at the most recent New York Film Festival or uh, in our theaters currently, where it's enjoying its release. Uh, so definitely uh, keep an eye on Revoir Paris. It's a really exceptional opening night film and, and we couldn't ask for a better way to kick off this opening weekend. Uh, I also, before I get into the rest of the films, I want to make a plug for our program of free talks as part of Rendezvous with French Cinema. These events are all about an hour long and will take place in our amphitheater. And they're all completely free to attend. Uh, tickets available on a first come first serve basis at our box office starting an hour before the events. So the first one that I want to mention is taking place this afternoon at 5 p.m. Uh, featuring our opening night filmmaker, Alice Winocourt, as well as our guest of honor for this year's rendezvous, Sophie Bart, who's a, a, a French-born filmmaker based in New York, whose recent film, The Pod Generation, uh, had a premiere at the Sundance Film Festival just last month. Uh, and we're really excited to have Sophie join us for a special in-depth conversation with Alice about both women's filmographies, their relationships with the French and American film industries, their practices, their working methods. And uh, so that's, I think, going to be a very exciting uh, and accessible way to dig into 
the great films that we have to celebrate this weekend. Then tomorrow on Friday, March, March 3rd at 5 p.m., we will be having another free talk with Virginie Ferra, who, as I already mentioned, uh, is the César winning star of Revoir Paris and uh, also happens to star in the new film from Rebecca Zlotowski, Other People's Children, which is also screening as part of Rendezvous on March 3rd and March 12th. And uh, you probably also will recognize Efira from uh, her recent performances in leading roles in recent New York Film Festival selections, Benedetta and Sybil. And so uh, she's really a star on the rise, an incredible talent. And uh, we're really excited to have this dedicated event uh, where we can pick her brain about her career so far and, and where she's going. Uh, just to get into some film highlights that I uh, want to make sure that everyone knows to check out. Uh, the first that I'll mention is a film called The Gravity, which is uh, the second narrative feature by French Burkinabe director Cédric Ido, uh, which is set in his hometown of Saint-Saint-Denis, a banlieue just outside of Paris. Uh, this film follows a man who's been newly released from prison and who returns home to the, the project's outside of Paris, and he must uh, navigate a relationship with his friend who's gone straight uh, and at the same time deal with being drawn back into the orbit of uh, his brother and his drug dealing activities, which uh, were, you know, related to his initial imprisonment in the first place. And as this is all unfolding in sort of a, a crime saga uh, register, there are also some interesting sci-fi genre elements that come into play because as uh, the protagonist is returning home from being incarcerated, uh, there's simultaneously a sort of mysterious, auspicious planetary alignment event uh, that's taking place. And it has unexpected effects on um, the characters and as they're navigating these very uh, grounded real world um, sort of dramatic pieces. So it's a generically, it's a fascinating sort of hybrid film. Um, the performances are really vivid and uh, uh, exciting. And um, we're really excited to welcome this up and coming director to present the film. He will be participating in a Q&A following the first screening on Saturday, March 4th. And then there will be a repeat screening of the film on March 6th. The next film I want to highlight is uh, The Worst Ones, which is the debut feature from co-directors Lise Akoka and Romain Guerre. Uh, it won the top prize in the Uncertain Regard section at last year's Cannes Film Festival. And uh, it's a really fascinating film that plays with the relationship between documentary and fiction and the ethics of bringing documentary elements into fiction and vice versa. It's set in Boulogne-sur-Mer, which is a small coastal port city on the far northern tip of France. And it follows a Belgian director and his crew as they set about casting local non-professional actors uh, for a narrative film that will be set in this region, in this small town. And when he sort of zeroes in on four working class teens uh, cast from the housing projects, the other residents of the town get up in arms and become uh, sort of take a stand in relation to this film and these casting decisions out of concern for how their town will be represented. And then meanwhile, for the teens themselves, the young people who've been cast in this film within a film, the excitement of being enlisted for this 
these film roles kind of butts up against the realities of their lives uh, in the projects in this small town. And it's a very layered film. Uh, stylistically, Akoka and Guerre take an a un- unobtrusive, lived-in approach to depicting their, these fictional characters who are very much, um, if not based on, then in dialogue with the identities of the non-professional actors who were cast for the film itself. Uh, And so this question of documentary versus fiction is really foregrounded uh, as a result of kind of an implicit fascination with how these two modes of telling stories and accessing truth interact. The Worst Ones is screening first on Sunday, March 5th with a Q&A with the directors and then screening again on March 7th. Next, I want to highlight the new film from director Florent Goulou, Three Nights a Week which is screening with a Q&A on Saturday, March 11th, and then again on March 12th with no Q&A. This film was a really, really lovely, very tender um, and and surprising fable, just in the twists and turns that the story takes, about a young man, an aspiring photographer, who's working, you know, kind of an unfulfilling retail job, Uh, But in the course of his life outside of work, he befriends a troupe of drag performers and uh, becomes involved in their community, in their world, and is uh, first taking on the, the task of documenting their work and their performance and their behind the scenes lives uh, as a photographer and his work as a photographer. And then uh, gradually developing strong personal connections with the the people in the troupe and and discovering truths about himself as a result of that in a way that's really very beautifully rendered on screen very beautifully performed by the actors um and and it's just a a a real um story of self-discovery and and community and found family. And um, we're excited also to be hosting the filmmaker of Three Nights a Week, Florent Goulou, uh, for a special rendezvous free talk uh, that's titled Queer Identities on Screen, presented in partnership with the Gotham Film and Media Institute and French in Motion. Uh, that'll take place on Friday, March 10th at 4 p.m. Also free, like all of our talks. And uh, this will be a roundtable discussion with uh, Guelou, as well as Rendezvous director Christophe Honoré, whose film Winter Boy is screening March 9th and 11th. And uh, the roundtable will also feature Jordan West, whose new film Playland uh, had its world premiere at the International Film Festival Rotterdam uh, just a few weeks ago, as well as director Vuk Lunglov Klotz, whose uh, new film Mutt is, has recently been announced as the closing night selection for uh, the upcoming edition of New Directors, New Films, which FLC presents in collaboration with MoMA each year. Uh, so Florent, Christophe, Jordan, and Vuk will all be joining us uh, for this roundtable, uh, which will, I think, just serve as another opportunity to really celebrate and dig into Florent's film, Three Nights a Week, as well as Christophe's film, uh, Winter Boy. So we hope that you'll come out for those screenings and uh, for the talks as well. We're really thrilled to have all this talent here to to get into the work with us. And then the last film I want to put in a plug for uh, is 
Quentin Dupieux's Smoking Causes Coughing. Unfortunately, Dupieux will not be able to join us uh, for a Q&A, but the film screens twice on March 10th and 12th. And I just want to shout out the fact that as was highlighted in the new poster that was revealed for this film uh, just a few days ago, John Waters listed it as one of his best of 2022 in a roundup in art forum recently. Uh, and he wrote, quote, can a movie be both stupid and effete, yet unironic? Only the French can pull that off. And this moronic auteur of ignoramuses does it again. Brilliant performances and dumbbell dialogue equal a superhero movie for idiots that surpasses all the tedium of Hollywood blockbusters. So if that hasn't piqued your interest enough, I'll also just mention that the film stars uh, favorites from last year's Rendezvous lineup, Anaïs de Moustier, who uh, was the lead in the film Anaïs in Love, and also uh, Vincent Lacoste, who had a lead role in Lost Illusions. And um, Smoking Causes Coughing also features great performances by the the beloved actor Gilles Lelouch and newcomer Ulaya Amamara, who uh, you might recognize from Philippe Garel's The Salt of Tears, which screened in the New York Film Festival just a few years ago. Uh, the, the the ensemble cast of Smoking Causes Coughing is really um, what makes Quentin Dupieux's kind of uh, profound goofiness successful. And I think as you'll see when you see this film, there's a real magic that happens with this cast and um, the, the sort of flamboyance of his uh, send up of, of Hollywood superhero movies really wouldn't be possible without that very particular chemistry uh, that his cast has. And so I hope that um, you'll check out the film. And uh, with that, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And uh, I hope to see you at the Walter Reed Theater or the Amphitheater uh, for events in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. decade, Beijing-based wife and husband team, Hyang Ji and Ryuji Atsuka, have been making films about the lives of young people in China, in many cases left behind children or those whose parents are forced to leave their families to find jobs in new cities. Expanding their project, their gripping, humane, yet uncompromising latest shot with a precise formal economy by Atsuka, who also serves as cinematographer, focuses on a year in the life of Lin, a flight attendant in training whose plans to finish college are thrown into doubt when she discovers she's pregnant. Not wanting an abortion, a decision she hides from her callow, absent boyfriend, away on modeling and party-hosting gigs, she hopes to give the child away after carrying it to term, while staying afloat amidst a series of dead-end jobs. As incarnated by the filmmaker's quietly potent, recurring star, Yao Hungui, Lin, whose story continues after being the center of the filmmaker's acclaim to the foolish bird in 2007, is both a fully rounded character and the vessel for an urgent critique of a modern day social structure that has few options for women in need of care. Stonewalling opens on March 10th in our theaters with in-person Q&As with directors Young Ji and Ryuji Atsuka during opening weekend and special screenings of Eggenstone and The Foolish Bird. Get showtimes and tickets at filmlink.org slash stonewalling. It's, it's, um, it's a third film in a sort of a vague trilogy. It's the first time you worked as co-directors. You usually direct and you usually shoot the film. 
so this time you changed a little bit um, your habits. So can, why did you start to co-direct on this film? And what was uh, the process in, in working together? Uh, so when I first made the, the first trilogy, first of the three, Egg and Stone, uh, it's very much about my own experience growing up in rural area China and then the sexual harassment that I experienced uh, when I was uh, young. So that is a very, very personal experience and personal film, and therefore I was the director of that. The second film, similarly, The Foolish Bird, uh, it very much reflect my experience when I was in high school, and that is also something that is very close to me personally, and therefore I was the director of that, and then um, the husband will be the cinematographer. The third one, this one, is very much about uh, not so much of an individual, but as this college-age students or college-age women as a collective, as a group. And I do think that there, there's not that much of uh, similarity between these people and myself. And therefore, I thought that it will be more fitting for both of us to be the directors for this particular film. Also because he is my husband, also this, the father of my daughter. So uh, if this were to be in the context of two directors, then any type of um, conflicts or any kind of disagreement we have will be purely based on between two directors rather than something that will be personal and um, familial. So I think that will be a much better approach to, to co-direct this film. 老公, <laughs> what do you think about my end? Uh, <laughs> There's no way that I can say no to you. You know your place in the process. Also, there's something that I really admire in the the, the way you you worked. It's a lot of um, documentary approach uh, and a lot of um, reality and observation in a process that you put in a narrative. Uh, and the story around uh, the story of Lian. So can you talk a little bit more about the approach that you've decided to, to use for, for your work? So I do think that it has a lot to do with sort of this lenses of time that I'm trying to capture with this film to document what's going on in a 10-month period for someone to go through the pregnancy and come to full term um, and give, lab, uh, give birth to a child. And I, you know, it took us 10 months to make this film. I'm a male person. I have never had the chance or the possibility to experience pregnancy. And I do think that for me, it is important not only to examine the, the, the changes, not only physically, but also psychologically and emotionally during these different phases of pregnancy, but also to examine the greater social context that uh, you know, for someone of this age and being pregnant in this particular society, and those are the things that more of the observational side of it, the context, the background, uh, that is something that I also want to capture through the character. And that's the reason why that you do see that combination of, even though it's a narrative film, but you do see that sense of documentary reality being captured. 
<coughs> 那对我来说，因为我是一个女人。So I am a female person, and I actually have been through the process of giving birth to a child. So to me, within this ten-month period, it's not、uh, just talking about the the end result, the pain and joy of、uh, giving birth to a child, but the process. During this ten-month period, how you can carry this to full term? Not only thinking about the child himself or herself, but also think about how you're going to spend these long period of time, which is about ten months, and also the things that you plan to do or the connection that you want to make with other people during while you're pregnant. And those are the things that I think that I want to capture more through these characters: is that what do you do? In these ten months, as a female person carrying a child, what kind of connection you have with the greater, you know, the the, the world that、uh, you are part of, and、uh, what kind of connections or disconnections that you might have with the people around you, and that is uh, indeed uh, what I'm trying to focus on, rather than the pain and joy, is the the numbness and the fatigues and the the. the、uh, Feeling tired physically, mentally, and that is very much the, from my perspective、uh, why there's this sense of documentary reality to it. This Philmont Lincoln Center podcast episode is supported by Netflix, presenting All Quiet on the Western Front. Winner of seven BAFTA awards, including Best Picture. Best Director and Adapted Screenplay for Edward Berger, and Best Cinematography, Sound, and Original Score. Adapted from the best-selling novel, Next Best Picture, raves that All Quiet on the Western Front is must-see viewing, a timeless story with even deeper relevance today. Entertainment Weekly said composer Volker Bertelmann's score is gorgeously unsettling, and Awards Watch said Edward Berger perfectly elevates. One of the most important texts of anti-war literature. Now nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Original Score, Best Adapted Screenplay, International Feature Film, and Best Picture of the Year, Awards Daily calls Edward Berger's stunning adaptation a jaw-dropping masterpiece. It is one of the greatest anti-war films of all time. All Quiet on the Western Front is playing in select theaters and available on Netflix. For your awards consideration. It's a film that's very much set in、uh, contemporary China, dealing with、uh, youth and contemporary problems. But it's also a very universal thing that's depicted depicted in in the film.、Uh, the story of Lin totally makes sense in what's happening in the society she's living in, but it's also a story that could totally take place somewhere else. And we relate to Lin, I think, as male, as female, as young, as older. And and the way she's dealing with the internal turmoil and not taking action and trying to move on and trying not to move on, and I really love that aspect. And I think it's what really touches us in the film and pulls us in. So I would like you to discuss a little bit about the the fact that you make something that at the same time so set in a certain culture but also so global. I. 因为我们拍了十个月，让。So one of the ways to think about how that happened is because we we spent ten months making this film, and during this time, the actors, 
including the, the parents, uh, we all lived together for 10 months. And when we were not shooting the film, we also just go around the city to see what is going on in the society and what people are doing at the time. So very much that uh, the here and now, what's happening in the Chinese society in this particular location uh, is something that I didn't even uh, write about in my screen, um, I'm sorry, in my screenplay, but at the same time that I thought that I need to include them into uh, the, the film. And I think that may be one of the reasons why it has this sense of not only uh, something that is so uniquely Chinese, but at the same time also very, very uh, universal. And in terms of character developments, I think uh, when I wrote the script, uh, I didn't really have a, a real handle on what's going on right now with the young people in this particular generation. And it's not until that uh, I interact with the, the young actors and the people involved in the film, other than the, the two, uh, the, the leads of the film, I start to realize that they have a very unique sense of looking at other people and also looking at the world. Uh, not just China, but also the world. And I do think that from their perspective, from this particular generation, young people, they tend to have this sense of what I call it the lying flatism in, in a way that almost trying to be, uh, uh, not to sort of go against the grain of trying to resist whatever other people's expectations of what they should do. So I do think that this kind of state of mind and this kind of mentality and this sort of the zeitgeist of this particular generation is very much what I'm trying to capture and somehow uh, have, to re re uh, have to rewrite my script just so that I can capture this sense of realness uh, for this particular generation. I do think that people tend to think about the generation, they think about they've been very active, very proactive, they have agencies, but I do think that that might not be the case for this particular generation, especially right now. So a lot of uh, young people in China, um, like their parents' generation, they are not that gullible. They are very, very savvy and they are very, very pragmatic. I don't know whether or not the young people here in the United States, uh, whether or not they are like this as well. I just wanted to ask a final question and then we can ask the audience to participate. But it's an underman actress who plays Lian. Uh, you worked with her before. And she has um, a very particular way of acting that seems a little bit... Um, not desynchronized, but she moves a little bit differently than the other actor, and it's quite captivating to see. So can you talk a little bit about, you worked with her before, so you're following her, but can you talk about your experience working with her, directing her, and what she inspired you as part of the young people that you just discussed? Um. <sighs> <laughs> So uh, we have a very small crew, so other than the both of us and the, uh, the female lead, we have the sound guy that we uh, have worked together uh, throughout the film, so I do think that maybe we'll start with your perspective as a male director interacting with this particular female lead. Mm. <laughs> female. 
呃，我觉得呃，因为我在现场的时候。So, uh, uh, when we're on site as co-directors, the divisional labors between the two of us as co-directors is that she will be in charge of communicating with the actors, and for me, I'm in charge of the sound and also the cinematography. So for me, uh, even though that I observe the process of the communications and all that, but during the shooting and do, uh, when we, we are on site, for me, it, it's most like uh, most of the time I just an observer uh, to observe how she either portray the characters in the script or that she is just acting out as herself in real life. And I sometimes I don't know which is which, uh, which to me not necessarily a bad thing because I do want to have that kind of observational way of keeping the distance and just documenting as many takes as I can. And then I will then think about how am I going to edit this in uh, post production. And I do think that because of the fact that I do see that there's a very unique aura and vibe. Whenever she is on camera, and I really want to somehow capture that kind of non-plot-related um, spirit and also atmospheres and that kind of yeah, the best way I can say is the aura and the vibe that that's just so unique of her own. And then um, when I do edit them together, somehow I will I will see the the, the unique rhythm. Uh, of her performance, and that is actually uh, something quite astonishing. So to me, it's actually quite a painful process, just because my rhythm uh, as a screen, you know, as a screen grape, Uh, as a writer and also as a director, is so different from her performance in terms of the rhythm. So for whatever uh, situations that I put her in, the way I think about how you should react and how in terms of the treatment of that particular scene is very different from how she react to that situation and how fast she react to that situation and the treatment that she will bring to that particular situation. So I, I do think that this painful process really teach me in such a way to realize that um, if she were to treat or act or perform the way I expect her to react, to treat that particular scene, I do think that This would be a performance that has been so been seen so many times in the past of a female character on screen, and it's so generic, and that is mm -hmm. there's nothing unique about it. So because I uh, I'm informed by many of the books and the films that I have seen to think about building a character, developing a female character, and I do think that that have a huge impact on how I see what a female character should act and behave in that in those situations. And for our lead female character, she doesn't really read that much or watch that many films. So I guess in a way that she wasn't that pigeonholed by how uh, uh, sort of the, the generic template of a female character should behave and react. So to me, it's very much that uh, she just act the way that she thinks how she or the character would react or will uh, act 
for that particular scene. So if I just have her performing the exact same way that I imagine what a female character of this particular situation will behave and react, then there won't it won't be anything interesting. And it's also something that is out of imagination or some mm-hmm. kind of preconceived notion rather than rooted in reality. So to me, I really learned about as a creator uh, of a film or any type of um, mm-hmm. artistic expressions, you really need to capture what is going on here and now and then have that kind of uh, uh, ability to reflect, mm-hmm. even though that it might be the absolute mm-hmm. reality that, that you capture, but I think it's closer to the reality. Mm-hmm. But still, it's a painful process. <laughs> Do we have time for audience question? Okay. Yes. So there's a microphone, raise your hand. There's a bright light, so it's hard to see. There's a question here. So the process is that I actually go around the city and just look for people that I find interesting. And these people, for sure, that I will ask them, the first question, uh, well, many questions that I ask them is very much about their life experience. And I want to know them. And then I will share with them the, the scripts and also the plot lines and all the scenarios that they will be in or they if they join us, uh, the scenarios. And then I will want them to tell me how would they react to that particular situation. So it's almost as if I am looking for the people who can naturally uh, react the way that um, I, I have written down in their scripts so that, that they will come, uh, appear to be very, very natural. Mm-hmm. So for each long take, we probably have either one or two takes uh, for uh, that particular scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the, for the actors, uh, as I mentioned before, the division labor between us is that she will be communicating with the actors. So for me, as a cinematographer, is that I w- the camera is always rolling, and I have no idea how long or how short their quote-unquote performance will be. So I just keep the camera rolling and capture however the tempo, however, the ways or the treatments they want to bring to that particular scene. <laughs> so for example, that particular scene in the car when Lynn and the mother and also the boss from the kindergarten, they're discussing you know, how they're going to deal with the, the, the newborn baby. And then at one point, the boss said that, how about you just take this baby back and take, it, take care of the baby for a year? That particular line wasn't written in a script. It's something of uh, the invention of this particular actors then sort of uh, improvise for that particular scene. We'll take one final question uh, because otherwise the cinema will close. Ah, too many people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, like someone close to you. Go, go. So in the beginning of the production, we already had this mutual agreement that this is going to be a film that will take 10 months to make, then to shoot. And we only want to have one static perspective and camera to capture um, what we are observing during those 10 months. And we want to also keep a distance. So those are the things that are already set up right from the beginning. And then we decided to use the 50 millimeter 
camera and frame by frame, all I have to do is to think about what, where will be the best place to set up the camera in such a way that I can then fulfill all the th those things that, that we have agreed upon in the, uh, in the beginning of the shooting. Thank you so much. I wish we had more time to discuss, but you know, it's getting late. You're coming back tomorrow Meaning for a second back. screening. So if you want to ask more questions, you would be back. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>